Well, at least you know the proper response. <laughs> okay? We're going to take a look. Uh, we're going to review where we have been, but today we're taking a look at the Protestant confessions or the Protestant creeds. And eventually I will get there. I just want to remind you of a few things. And this talk will be photocopied and given to you next week. So you'll have it in paper form. Okay? And if you ask me nicely, I might even email it to you. But it's got to be very nice and the check ought to be very big. <laughs> no, no. We've been talking about three things. Creeds, which are short statements of faith of what we or I believe, like the Apostles' Creed, I believe in God the Father, or the Nicene Creed, we believe in God the Father. Confessions, which are more elaborate uh, statements that try to flesh out Nicene and or Apostles' Creed and grant to us an understanding of what the church has believed and does believe even now. And catechism, which are two teaching tools with questions and answers. Uh, primarily began to be used with children, but even adults need to have them. And in fact, it used to be in the life of the church that adult members memorized them. So the pastor could get up on a Sunday morning and say, question 103. Repeat the question and the congregation would stand up and say, yes, we got it. <laughs> so, but that's a way of teaching the faith. Uh, the first week we took a look at why there are creeds. There, we have creeds because they're biblical. The Bible has creeds and therefore we're following the example of the scriptures. And the creeds themselves come from the Bible, the teachings of the Bible. Next, two weeks from today, next week, John Gray gets to teach you. And I listened to some of his talk yesterday. You are, it's going to be a great talk. So, we're going to be using this book, the Heidelberg Catechism. And we're going to be taking a look at it. And in this book, it has not only the questions, but it has the scriptural verification for those questions. So, you can get a copy of this. We have a few of them. If, you, if we run out and you need more, uh, talk to us. We'll get more because you have a couple weeks before we start that. And we'll be looking at that. They're reliable. They've been approved by the church over the ages. They've been verified over the centuries. They've stood the test of time. They are historic. Having stood the test of time, they remind us the Holy Spirit did not begin teaching in 1965 with the charismatic movement. The Holy Spirit has been teaching, guiding, instructing the church for 2,000 years. And it would, it would be bereft of us if we did not listen to what the Spirit said in the first century because it's the same thing he'll say in the 20th century. We are pygmies because we have not studied that. In fact, someone said we stand on the shoulders of spiritual giants. Why? Because those spiritual giants knew the teaching of the church throughout, uh, throughout its history. We need to get, you need to go out and get the 24-volume Antonician uh, and Postnician. And you read that before you go to bed because it'll put you to sleep. No, you read it because it'll give you so much information. I'm just giving you, I'm scratching the surface on this. 
And lastly, the creeds are enriching. That is, they enhance our praise and worship in life. Who do you worship if you don't really know who God is? First couple centuries, they were battling with who is the triune God? Was he one God who showed himself up in three different persons or three different ways, manners, as part of modalism? Is he one God who is an angry God and therefore had to send his son to appease, uh, to wipe out the Old Testament because it's an angry book? They obviously hadn't read the Old Testament. Is he, you know, what is he? If you are not worshiping the true God, you're violating the second commandment. You have set up an idol. That's why you know the stuff, the depth of what it is in theology, because that helps you to worship God, who he is and the way in which he wants to be worshiped. Part of the failings of our day and age is people say, I love Jesus. And then you ask them, well, who is Jesus? I don't know. <laughs> He's lived in the first century. And it says, well, how can you love somebody you really don't know? And if you really do love him, what's the one thing you want to get to do? Know him in the depths of who they are. Spent 44 years with Peg. And if I only knew her as much as I did when we were dating, she should shake her head and go, oh man, it's been a waste of 44 years. <laughs> but we know each other a lot better, okay? Uh, we took a look at some of the ancient creeds with the church councils. The first council was from Acts 15, Council of Jerusalem, where they faced a problem. They solved it by some vigorous debate, and then they communicated their solution to the church as a whole so that it would be followed. Um, basically what they were doing and what all creeds do is that they are providing an apology for our faith. First Peter 3.15, Peter writes, But in your hearts regard Christ the Lord as holy, set apart, who he is. Always prepare to make a defense to anyone who asks you for a reason for the hope that is in you. Be prepared to make an apology. And again, I'll remind you, that doesn't mean, I'm sorry. It means a defense, a word about. Who is Christ? I have the background, I have the understanding, I have the experience with who he is. And you are always to be ready to do that. On the other side, you have what Paul wrote to Titus in the third chapter. The saying is trustworthy. I want you to insist on these things so that those who have believed in God may be careful to devote themselves to good works. These are excellent and profitable for people. But avoid foolish controversies, genealogies, dissension, and quarrels about the law for they are unprofitable and worthless. As for a person who stirs up division after warning him once and then twice, have nothing more to do with him, knowing that such a person is warped and sinful, he is self-condemned. Person who stores up a division, that word division is the base word for our word heretic. A heretic is someone who causes division in the church. 
usually over theological matters, but could be about anything. You talk to him once, talk to him twice. You're like an umpire at home plate. You throw him out of the game. That's the whole idea. And that's what they were meant to do. Um, we study these creeds because there's nothing new under the sun. You're not going to come up with some great new revelation of who God is. He has. Why would he hide until the 19th and 20th and 21st century who he is? That's not his nature. Uh, part of the problem of our day is that people do not know who they are. And they do not know uh, what they believe. And therefore, they are those who... I know why I'd never used computers before. They don't work. They fly off the screen. I was a Boy Scout. Always be prepared. Ta-da! <laughs> but people don't know what they believe. So when someone comes in and gives them uh, a teaching, they fly after it. Or they don't know what they believe. So when someone challenges them, they say, what? Ooh, have no way to defend. Uh, and I'm saying in the last 200 years, we've seen a re repeat of the early history of the church. So we looked at early heretics like Docetism and Gnostics. Marcion, who decided the Old Testament books were just barbaric, and he jettisoned all of them. And anything that was in a New Testament book that referred to the Old Testament, he said, don't, don't even read it. Only gospel he had from Luke, and he took away Old Testament references, even the birth narratives and things like that. Uh, and the church came back out through them and gave teachings like the, the Didache, basic Christian faith, the rule of faith that helped them know how to lead and govern, uh, from which we received the Apostles' Creed. Later on, they would put together the uh, New Testament canon, not that they said that these books were the apostles' teaching. They just recognized what everybody else knew. They were. They didn't have to verify. Then you had forms of modalism. Mentioned a couple of them. Monarchianism, adoptionism. I like this one. Jesus, when he was baptized, the Spirit came down and empowered him with godlike abilities. But right before the cross, and they never quite say when, the Spirit left so he was adopted for that period of his ministry. When he went to the cross, he went as a, just a human being, and he died for the crime that he was accused of. And therefore, we have no Savior. We, of all people, are most to be despised because we have no salvation, no forgiveness of sins. And yet, as Paul would go on to say, we go around as saying as if we did deception. Then of the big one, Arianism. Arian said that Jesus is not the same substance of the Father. He is not true God. And uh, they dealt with that whole relationship. So you have the Council of Nicaea, Council of Constantinople. In Nicaea, they des destroyed Arianism but Arian was so popular, and he had such a hold upon the area in which he was bishop, Libya, that it continued on. They couldn't get rid of it. 
So they had to come back in about 20 or 60 years later and deal with it all over again. Plus, what's the deity of the Holy Spirit? And when they did that, they finally got Arianism, at least in some ways, out of the church. And they set what is the true understanding of one God, three persons in the Godhead. Now there's a lesson to be learned from that because every time they build a creed, there are more questions that come from that. And this continues to happen. From talking about the identity of the triune God, they talk about the identity of Christ, um, where they wonder how can fully God and fully man be put in one person. You have two natures in one person. There is a great debate about how this would take place. So, in good church fashion, they had two councils, the Council of Ephesus, where they declared and defended the fully God, fully man. You have Eutychus, a monk from Constantinople who denied the humanity of Christ, and so you get the council, and one of the most important councils of the church, the Council of Chalcedon, 451 AD. Remember that date. So when I ask you, what's the importance of December 7th, 1941? You all know that date. September 9, 2001. Four, and I'll ask you, what happened in 451 AD? And you all come out with the answer. Good. Three of you pass. <laughs> no. you, this, that is the, an important date, an important council. They came back and they said, Christ must be fully God. The scriptures teach that he was fully God. Christ must be fully human because you're obviously looking and reading about a human being who gets tired and hungry, uh, who walked, who had to eat, uh, all the natures of a human being. And the two natures are not mixed as though they were disappearing in one another that you couldn't tell one from the other, nor are they separated as to undermine the unity of the two. Now, they came up with what's called four negatives about this because theology likes to work in negatives. Sometimes we say this is what it is and sometimes we say this is what it isn't. In fact, one of the creeds of, from the Reformation basically does that. This is not what we believe because it helps to define and show the boundaries. So they said in the, uh, the creed, the one and the same Christ, Son, Lord, only begotten, recognized in two natures, without confusion, without change, without division, without separation. You cannot confuse, there's a uh, divine and there's a human nature. And you don't give to the human nature what is divine. They are without change. They are fully divine, fully human. The, uh, when Christ was conceived, all of a sudden his humanness did not become divine. They are without division that you cannot separate and pull them apart. They operate together. Now, the question is how, and the answer is, well, we're not too sure. This is one of the mysteries of the faith. But we know that they cannot be divided, and they're without separation. Uh, 
They cannot, God, or Christ cannot operate in his God side apart from his human side. The two go together. For instance, there's that passage in the Gospels where he tells the apostles or the disciples, let's go over to the other side. They get into the boat. He's had a very long week. He wants to sleep in. So he goes to the back of the boat and he lays down on a couch and he goes to sleep. A storm rises, a storm that is so bad it makes uh, fishermen fear that they're going to sink. They go back and they wake him up. And all he has to do is stand up and say, Peace! Be still! And the whole sea stops and the storm evaporates. You see, that's the divine part. But he had to speak as a human for that to happen. What's always amazing is, there he is sleeping in the back of the boat. And at the same time the scripture tells us, he was upholding the whole universe while he's sleeping. You imagine that? There he is conceived in the womb, being knitted together in his mother's womb, Psalm 139. And at the same time, he's upholding the whole universe. Now that'll make you go, amen. Hallelujah. Let's sing a praise chorus. Okay? Because that's who Christ is. And that's what they were getting at. Grudem puts... This And for you, those of you who have, who have studied Grudem's theology, which if you haven't, you're going to start next fall. If it started right, you're all going to come. Yeah, yeah, sure. Uh, you forget by that time, I'm sure. <laughs> you have the Father, you have the Holy Spirit, and you have the Son. And then you have... person of Christ. This is his divine nature. This is his human nature. And this shows you I need art lessons. <laughs> but in Christ, in the person of Christ, you have this, where he's divine and human in one person. Remember that? You'll get at least a, a, a preliminary idea. Now, that was important. Because now we define and we begin to understand more who Christ is, our Savior, the one who rescued us. Now, they're not the only ones that I, I don't think Truman deals with these, but I do because they are such important. There's another heretic that raised his face. His name is Pelagius. He's a British monk. You know, all trouble starts in Britain. <laughs> no, he's a British monk who was aghast that Augustine, remember Augustine is a city in Florida, Augustine is a saint. Augustine said this, and this is what he prayed that God give to us what you command and command what you will. And Pelagius said, hold it, time out. 
What happened to the freedom of human beings and the ability for us to choose without having to be underneath the sovereignty of God? And he said, that's not right. We are human beings. We have a right to choose. We can choose whatever we desire and wish. And there is no inherent sin. There, we can choose to believe about God without any of his help. It, we have that capacity within us. So he denies the fall, basically, and that we're born in sin. And he said, we're a blank state, we're a blank slate. We are shaped by our culture and our family and education and a matter of, and events that take place in our life. But we're blank slate. Have you ever heard that? That's modernism. That's modernism. Because it does not deal with the inherent sin that we have. It doesn't deal with the fall of Adam. That in the fall of Adam, we all have fallen. And there is something corrupt and twisted about us. Well, then he got those who couldn't go that far. They're called semi-Pelagians. And they said, human beings are desperately sick. They're on their deathbed. They're breathing their last. <laughs> they are there. And they're almost ready to die, but they can make one choice. And they can believe in God, and therefore they're saved. And they're given new life. They also basically are saying, there's one work you can do in your salvation. Christ did everything else that you need. The one work is to believe. Basically, this is modern evangelicalism. I've heard it. God has voted for you. The devil has voted against you. You cast the deciding vote. Uh, Finney, Andrew Finney. I wish he changed his first name, but he's dead. <laughs> Andrew Finney came up with this idea of the seeker's bench. It was the front pew. You are on Finney's pew. <laughs> and during the time... At, uh, at the end of a service, he'd had people come up who wanted to seek after Christ, and they were to stay there until they could make that decision. Didn't matter how long it was. So they would, they would play 49 choruses of Just As I Am, and they would do everything they could to make those people come to Christ. And at least out of a reformed or a historic Christian faith, we say, they can't. They don't love God. They have no desire for God. Faith does not come before regeneration. And the, uh, August, uh, Augustine came out and said, regeneration precedes Faith. You say that in some churches and in, in circles of our day and they'll go, no. But the only way a person can come to faith in Christ is if he is first of all regenerated. And then he can choose because the chooser has been altered. And now is his desire, his great love is to believe in Christ. 
where before he stiff-armed God and said, no, I don't want anything to do with you. Now he runs and flees to him to embrace him. There we are. That's why you, you study these kind of things because you'll see through these creeds and even as we get to the Reformation creeds, the very things that are going on in our own, in the church as a whole that need to be dealt with. We need to stand up and be apologetics. 1 Peter 3.15 And we need those creeds for us to think about these kind of issues. Because many times we just take whatever the person up front says and we just accept it without going back and thinking about what the Bible says nor what the tradition, the history of the church has said about these issues. Uh, we need to be like the Bereans who were more noble because they took, when they listened to Paul, they went back, pulled out their scriptures, said, well, you know, you know, I guess he's right. <sighs> they studied the scriptures to make sure they knew what he was. Okay, now, we get to the Protestant creeds. Finally, you say, you took half an hour to review. I'll take two hours to go through the Protestant creeds, right? We're going we're gonna to skip worship. We're just going right into lunch. The Protestant creeds. Uh, a couple things that, that created these. One, this was a uh, tumultuous time in the life of the church. Someone said every 500 years the church has had a reformation. In the 500s or 400s it was the Council of Chalcedon. Ah, thank you. In the 100s it was a break between the Eastern Church and the Western Church, between Rome and Eastern Orthodox. In the 1500s it was a break between the Protestants who that's the Catholic word for it because they were protesting against the uh, Catholic Church and the protesters called themselves the Reformation. And you almost ought to put a little dash in there because their whole idea was to reform the church from the decrepitcy and the state in which it was, back to the early church, back to what the church believed, back what was the confessional position of the church, even in the Roman Catholic Church, but that had been jettisoned. And so you have something like the indulgences where they were raising money for Rome, and they said, well, uh, if into the coffer a coin rings, out from pur purgatory, a, sp a soul will spring. And, you know, if you don't want your mother and father and sister and grandmother and grandfather to live in purgatory for a long time, what are you going to do? Flip it in. Because that was, you, you were paying for it. And they said, that's not, that's not salvation. The other issue is, you had a reforming faith that people never knew about. Therefore, how are you going to teach them what the original faith of the church is all about? 
So you have to develop some ways in which to grant that to them. And along with that, you had priests who had no idea what their priestly function was. They had been raised to follow a certain liturgy that was written in a book, and basically you read it, and you read it in Latin so the people never understood what you were saying. And in fact, you could even mispronounce Latin, and they probably wouldn't understand that you'd mispronounced it. They were given homilies. They had set the table, or what they call the altar, because it was a place of sacrifice right in the front. And that was the center of worship. The pulpit was up these long stairs and way up high, partly so you could hear, but partly off to the side so it wasn't central. And they gave 10-minute talks, many of them written by the mother church for them to give to the people. Sometimes they gave them in their vernacular. Sometimes they gave them in Latin, which everyone is sitting there going, well, I had no idea what they're talking about. Now, I've preached some sermons where people said, I had no idea what he's talking about. <laughs> but at least it was in English or my form of English. You have nothing common in the core of the church, and they needed to be updated, and they needed to have something that would give them a common core. So uh, the other part of this is that by this time, you did not have a Roman, uh, a Roman empire. You had a lot of different small empires. You had Germany, you had Switzerland, you had the, low, the lowlands, you had England, British. And each one was ruled by their own, uh, in their own way, either a, a king, a ruler, or a council. And they were people who set the stage for everything else that was going on. So Luther, when he decided to write his thesis, was under the protection of his prince. And he had to convince his prince that what he said is right, or he would, Luther would have been turned over to the Catholic Church and killed. And when Lutheranism took place, it was at the behest and at the request of the prince. The same thing in Switzerland. The city council said, this city is going to be Protestant, this city is going to be Catholic. They could be just a, a few matter of a few miles from each other, but it's a council who said, this is what we are. So you didn't have the unification, and therefore you had the diversification of what took place. For instance, you do have Lutheranism. And you understand from where they got the title, right? Martin Luther. And they put together uh, an, an, excuse me, an associate called Melanchthon, Philip Melanchthon, who helped. And they put together some standards by which the Lutheran Church could operate. Things like the Augsburg Confession, the Apology of Augsburg Confession, that's the defense of it, the Small Cad Articles, the Apostles' Creed, the Nicene Creed, the Athanasian Creed. This is a great one. Treaties on the power and primacy of the Pope. And it was not in favor of it. <laughs> Luther's Small Catechism, Large Catechism, and finally the, the uh, Formula of Concord. 
Um, it helped them to explain who they were as a movement and why they departed from the Roman Catholic Church. Why would you not try to stay in? Well, first of all, they were kicked out. But second, it gave a, a defense for what took place. And Lutheran creeds focus on sacramentalism and maturity or pedagogical spelling is in question, maturity. Yeah, they had people who knew absolutely nothing. The only reason they went to church is because they thought they were paying off their sins. The only reason they went to confession is they thought the priest could absolve them of their confession of their sins and they would be set right. They knew nothing about the Bible, nothing about their faith, and so they had to teach them the ways of maturing as a Christian. As I said, you could be a priest, and Martin Luther was one of them, who could go through seminary and never read the Bible. All you read was a few of their doctors and their dissertations, and that was it. So even Luther had to grow in his understanding. The other is sacramentalism. That is, the sacraments are important. Remember, Lutheranism came out of Catholicism, and they did not jettison all of Catholicism. They put a big emphasis upon the sacraments and the importance of those in the midst of the church, which is important when we look back at it. Anglican. Church of England. Episcopal Church. Episcopal Church of North America. Anglican churches around the world. This is, this is a great beginning. Old King Henry VIII had a wife who could not give him a son. And every king wants a son who's going to take over the, the throne. So he said, i got to get rid of my wife. But the church wouldn't give him an annulment of the marriage. So he simply says, I can fix this. I'm going to start my own church. And I'm going to jettison from the Roman Catholic Church. And he does, and he marries another woman. Gets a divorce, or gets a divorce, the annulment, and marries his other, uh, his next wife. And in doing that, he set the church in England on its own. And so they had to come up with ways in which they would understand their faith. That is built out of Reformation principles. I mean, he just didn't start carte blanche. So they have the 39 articles, which are the formal confession of the faith, defining what they believe. They have the homilies, 39 sermons to be read aloud from the pulpit throughout the year. Why? Because their priests were ignorant about the Bible, about theology, and how to preach. They never, they never had to study it. They never, in some ways, ever had to make their own sermons. So they needed time to be able to re-educate, retool the priests to be able to do their functions, biblical functions of preaching and teaching 
and uh, leading worship, taking care of the church. And then they, f they finally put together a Book of Common Prayer. Book of Common Prayer was the book that was given to all the churches. This is the liturgy you follow. This is how you handle worship. This is, this is what the priest is to do then. And when the bishop comes, he does this then. It was the prayers of the people. It set a common liturgy for the whole denomination. And it also gave to the priests the early, the early on the ability to know what to say and how to pray. Because they just didn't know. The Book of Common Prayer is one of the most exquisite documents ever written. It is online with Shakespeare for its beauty of its language. I happen to have the Book of Common Worship, which comes from long ago in my, uh, in my denomination of being Presbyterian. But it's ex extreme, it's very like this, except we Presbyterians are rebellious. And therefore, it doesn't say, you shall do this. He says, well, you might want to do this. <laughs> but it gives that opportunity. A great aid to learn and to re retrain and get ready. And those are still primary documents in the church. And then finally, you have the Reformed. I say finally but it means we go on for another 10 minutes looking at finally, okay? Because you have the Swiss Reformation, you have the Low Country, the Netherlands, and you have the English Reformation. Swiss Re Reformation came out of uh, Basically, Zurich or Geneva, John Calvin, contemporary of Luther, who began and formed the church. And they are the ones who, did, uh, Calvin put together a, a Genevan catechism, again, a teaching tool for his believers, for his church. And they also put that together the second Helvetic confession. It reflects a theological maturity uh, for, because it's later on in the 1500s, but it is also moderate in its tone and its Catholic expression. It was an attempt to not be political or be polemic with the Catholic Church, but say, this is what we believe together, and this is what we ought to believe as Protestants, as Reformed individuals. Then you have Low Country or Dutch. You have denominations like the Dutch Reform, Reformed Church of America, Christian Reformed Church. They all come from here. And they developed three, the, what they call the three forms of unity. There's a Belgic confession that was written as an apology to the king of that area of why Reformation theology was good and why uh, Reformed theology ought to be taught to our people give some toleration. You have the Heidelberg Catechism, what we're going to study. It was an attempt to reconcile Lutheranism 
with Reformed. You know, Luther and Calvin believed on about every iota of theology except one. And that is the Lord's Supper. And it comes down to the word is. What does is mean? You heard this two, two decades ago. It has not changed. What is the meaning of is? Does is mean that this actually becomes the body and blood of Christ? Where the Roman Catholics would say when the priest rings a bell, the elements change from their what they look like, bread and wine, into the body and blood, the actual body and blood of Christ. And the reformer said, how can that be? He's up in heaven. You can't divide the body and blood of Christ. Or you had Luther that said, well, yeah, they stay the same, but infused into them, consubstantiation, infused into them is the body and blood of Christ. Then you had the reformers. Well, you still got the same problem. How do you divide the body of Christ that's in heaven? Well, is doesn't mean it actually is. It means it represents. It's the vehicle by which you are united with the body and blood of Christ, that which is still in heaven. But as you take the bread and as you drink the cup, the Holy Spirit takes you and brings you before the sacrificial lamb of your salvation. And you eat and you drink and you are united with Christ. So he's so Catholic Church, you only got the wafer because you're, you're not holy enough to have the blood. In the Lutheran Church, you took both of them, but only the, pre, only the priest or the pastor could eat what remained. In the Reformed Church, Hey, it's bread, and, it's bread and wine. When you're done, you're done. The, the pastor goes out into the back and drinks up the rest of the wine that's in the cup. That's why alcoholism was so great. No, no. <laughs> but also, they would, they would just hand out the bread. They'd just throw it to the birds. They'd do it. It's, just, it's an element. It's the same thing as all it has been. There's nothing wholly sacred about it. And then you have later on, you have the Anabaptists, and they simply say, it's a rite. It's only a remembrance. Nothing actually happens when you take that meal. Okay. But Luther and Zwingli, a reformer, sat down and talked about this, and they could not agree on that word, is. And the division continued between Lutheranism and reformed, and out of that, the uh, the prince of the area said, "We've got to find some way to bring you all together. Let's develop the Heidelberg Catechism because that's where they met. And in there, let us decide what we believe together, and let's kind of fudge on what we think about the sacraments, only so we can be reconciled." Well. Lutheran was a hard nut to crack. And he produced a lot of hard nuts to crack. It was like, we are not giving in one iota on this. Is, 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 it doesn't mean represents. Or it's not the channel. And so they stayed separated. But the beauty of the Heidelberg Catechism, as you'll see, is that it is pastoral. 
it is it is uh, complete. You deal with three sections: sin, your guilt, salvation, and then you deal with your service or your gratitude. Those three areas, and you also take a look at the Lord's Prayer, the Apostles' Creed, um, the Ten Commandments. And again, it's a teaching tool in the basics of the Christian faith. And when you're done with this, next fall you go to Grudem's theological class so that you get the insights. I'm trying to plug this. You know, they're not, I'm not getting any response. There's no hallelujah. Amen. Okay, thank you. That's the... Uh, oh, the other one is the Canons of Dort. There was the Canons of Dort. There was a, a man named Ar Arminius who began the Arminian party within the Dutch church that basically denied reformational theology. Have you heard of the five solos? You've taught about those? Solo Christos, Solo Fide, Solo Gratia, Solo Scriptura, Scripture's authority above all authorities, and Solo Dei Gloria. Well, he denied those. And he denied the forms of, of what had become Calvinism, and that is TULIP. Have you heard about TULIP? They're about ready to bloom? No, no. <laughs> TULIP is an acronym for the basic five points of Calvinism. Total depravity, that means that every area of our life is corrupted. Unconditional election. That is, God chose you not for anything you are, or anything you've ever done, or where you come from. It's out of his own choosing. Limited atonement, that Christ did not die for every human being. Because if he died for every human being, then their sins are already taken care of. And why do they need to believe? Why do they need salvation? Uh, why do they need to come to Christ? They don't. If Every sin is dealt with. I mean, it just, it's kind of a logical progression and understanding. I means irresistible grace. That is, when God is gracious to you, you cannot and you actually don't want to resist it. You love it and you are moved toward it. And the P means either the preservation of the saints or the perseverance of the saints. I like preservation because it reminds me God is the one who preserves me. I am, yes, in that process of uh, working out my salvation in fear and trembling, but it is because God is at work to will and do his good pleasure in me. They denied this, and out of that came Tulip. So if you're going to be reformed, you've got to know your flowers. <laughs> you got to know that. That's The solos and the tulip are the ones that earmark us as uh, reformational people. And finally, you have the English where you have the Westminster Standards. Uh, these are written about 100 years, old, uh, 100 years after the Reformation. Therefore, they have the maturity of hindsight, of thought, maturity of those who had grown to study, and when they put them together, the uh, confession of faith, 
very insightful, with, deals with about every area of belief that you want. The uh, larger catechism is a teaching tool, primarily for adults, but for anybody. And it's, again, it's a question and answer. And you have the shorter catechism, which is primarily for children because it's shorter. It's easier. It's not as complex. But you have a difference. Question one, shorter catechism. What is the chief end of man? What's the purpose of human beings? Answer, chief end of man is to glorify God and to enjoy him forever. That's the most commonly used. I don't like that. I like the larger catechism. What is the chief end of man? Same question. Answer. The chief end of man is to glorify God. Same answer. And to fully enjoy him forever. See what that adverb does? Man, it just takes it way, it takes it from here, brings it way up here. It takes it from the earth into the stratosphere. Fully enjoy him forever. The depths of who we are. So, and then you have the directory of public worship, which is a, f a format to oversee that. Now, you also have the Baptist, Baptist uh, Confession, 1689, which I called Westminster Confession Light, because that's basically what it is. These Baptists can't go too deep. <laughs> no. <laughs> oh. They, it's, it's, it, it's light, and it also des denies baptizing infants and a uh, and the form of government that came out of the Reformed Church. And along with that, you have the Scottish Confession written by John Knox, who comes right out of the Reformation uh, in Geneva as the, quote, doctrinal ground of the infallible word of God for the Scottish Church. Now, I see in, in my background, we have in our book of confessions... Apostles' Creed, Nicene Creed, Belgic Confession, Scots Confession, Heidelberg Catechism, Westminster Standards, and we've added a whole bunch on which don't record this. They don't really say much, but people think they say a whole lot. Once you get to the Reformational Creed, you have really put together the foundation of the faith. So, um, you can see, and you'll also know that throughout the centuries there have been alterations in the uh, Westminster Standards, in the F Confession of Faith. You hit 1900 and you had the beginning of the charismatic movement and all of a sudden reformed people go, we forgot something. How they did it, because I don't know, because John Calvin is the theologian of the Holy Spirit. That's one of his titles. They said, we don't have a section on the Holy Spirit. We forgot the third person of the Trinity. So they added it in the early 1900s, and it's part of the confession today. Uh, you have... Uh, you have within the movement of the church a move away from confessions... Evangelical churches have really watered down statement of faith. I go online and check out congregations once in a while just to see what's out there. And they have 10 statements and that's it. 
And almost none of them have anything to do with sacraments. Why? From the very beginning, sacraments divided. Therefore, we will not say anything about sacraments. Or they're just rites. Parachurch organizations do the same thing. They don't want to talk about sacraments because they'll lose people. They'll lose money coming in. They'll lose support. Okay. Um, one of the things with all these creeds, they have a striking similarity to the Trinity and the centrality of Christ. They have a high degree of consensus in the basics of salvation. The secondary actions after salvation may differ, but they're pretty well the same. And again, the difference on the Lord's Supper is fairly well uh, understood between them. So that is a summary of this book. Now you can go home and be a good Berean and read it and say, did he do a fair job of what Truman had to say? And if I didn't, don't tell me. <laughs> and two weeks from today, we'll start looking at the Heidelberg Catechism. Um, I'm convinced you study the Catechism, this will grow your faith. There's no doubt about it. If we really wanted to be diligent, we would give you the larger catechism and have you memorize it. But we are sympathetic to your time and your abilities. But this book is worthwhile. So if you do not have a copy and want one, yes. Amen. Do I get 100%? Close your eyes, bow your head. Everyone who wants one, raise your hand. <laughs> okay. Um, then you will want a copy, and we will get you copies. They, they say it's in the front a gift from Grace Christian Fellowship. But, you know, if you could slide a couple dollars into the offering plate to help pay for them, that wouldn't be too bad. Excuse me? No, 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 no. I just, I, I, I want you out of the gratitude of your heart to show how appreciative you are for a gift. Okay? I get gifts, especially if they're money, and 10% of it goes to the church. Ah, Allah. That's what we all think. Okay? That's where we're going to be going in, uh, starting in two weeks. No, you can't tweet. <laughs> oh, no. Smart Alex. Smart Alex. That's what we're surrounded by. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for all the men that you have raised that have helped put together our faith in ways in which we can understand it, read it, analyze it by the scriptures. We thank you for the opportunity that they have had to teach and to share and to shape the church over the centuries and we pray that you would indeed watch over us as we study take what has been said here that is in line with your word and your truth and help jam it and cement it into our minds and that which is fluff lord help us to forget and therefore we commit ourselves to you and to the work of your spirit within us and among us all to the name of your Son, Jesus Christ. And everyone said, Amen.